It was January 14th. The year was 1907, and a diverse group of Korean Christians and missionaries gathered in a church on the outskirts of Pyongyang, what today is the capital of North Korea. We have a photograph, I think, if we've got that slide. Halfway through the meeting, something happened, something supernatural, something unexpected that fell on the people who gathered. One by one, the men present began confessing their sins publicly to one another. They confessed sins of racial prejudice, particularly, and sins of hate, of anger, of jealousy. They called on their Lord with a longing and with an expectation. And God heard their prayers and spiritual renewal, revival broke out. It was an awakening, what centuries earlier the English Puritans had called a visitation. For God came down and thousands were moved to repent of their injustice, of sins, of grievances, of anger, of bitterness, of critical spirits, of judging hearts, of hatred for their fellow Man, one eyewitness describes what she saw in Pyongyang in 1907. She says the room was full of God's presence, a feeling of God's nearness. It was impossible to describe. The the whole audience began to cry out to God in prayer. It was not, not many voices, but one voice born of one spirit lifted to one Father above She says, God came to us in Pyongyang that night. Man, and then another man, and then another man would arise, confess his sins, and break down and weep with tears of joy at the forgiving blood of Jesus which cleansed him. Some threw themselves full length onto the floor. Hundreds of people stood with arms outstretched to heaven to receive a gift from God. Every man forgot each other. Each one was face to face with their God. She writes, everywhere the story was told, the same spirit flowed forth and spread. And all through the city, men were gathering from house to house, confessing to individuals they had injured, returning stolen property and money. The whole city was stirred. Churches began sprouting up throughout the Korean peninsula, and churches began to grow. The prayer movement spread across the Korean peninsula. Christians apologized to non-Christians who they were at odds with. And even during the oppression and the persecution of Japanese occupation, this spiritual awakening continued for some 40 years, touching all levels of church and society. Fire had fallen from heaven. The Spirit of God had fallen. There was spiritual awakening. Friends, do you long for that in your own life? Do you long for that in this city as you consider the bloodshed, the violence, the drugs, the gang violence, the hatred, the racism, the discord, the greed, the envy, the selfishness, the prayerlessness of a city that needs the blood of Jesus, a city that needs the touch of Christ, the city that needs to live 
as supernatural beings reconciled to their creator with a knowledge of his grace and a confidence in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, do you long for that in your own family, in your own soul, in your own relationship with God? Or are you afraid of the supernatural? And do you prefer to keep God at a distance? The Apostle Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians that if the Spirit of God is at work in a community of Christians, even even a non-Christian would walk in their midst and say, surely God is in this place. Do you long for a visitation of God, for your Creator to draw near? Do you long to be filled with a heart of worship and joy of repentance and reconciliation with your Creator? Are you hungry for God? Do you want to see Him? Do you want to know him? Do you want a real encounter with him? Do you thirst for God? Think about thirst when you have that feeling of cotton in the back of your mouth and going down your throat when you crave even a single drop. You're licking perspiration from your, from your face just to get a little bit of moisture, a little bit of the saltiness. You see condensation on a glass and you want to lick the side of the glass because you're so thirsty you would die for a cup of water. You think of it constantly. You can't get it out of your mind. The psalmist says, yea, I hunger even thirst for the courts of the Lord. Do you thirst for God? Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Do you want to thirst for him? Does your soul long for God to see the beauty of his holiness, to bask in his goodness, for God to draw near? Are you preparing for that to happen? Are you preparing for the Spirit to fall? See, the Spirit's falling in Pyongyang, in 1907 was the extension and fulfillment of something that God had already done in the early church in that first couple months after Jesus rose. Indeed, it was the 50th day after Christ's resurrection, that original Pentecost 2,000 years ago when for the first time the Spirit of God fell upon the followers of Jesus. When the power of God fell, it was described as fire from heaven. The Spirit of Jesus, in the Hebrew, it was the breath of God breathed out upon his people to take those who were dead and make them alive as a vast army with changed lives. It changed the church. Are you preparing with those earliest followers, because the Spirit of God did not fall in a vacuum. And today in our era, Christians, the Bible says, have all been baptized into one spirit. We've all been given one spirit to drink, but, but we so quickly, the Bible says, quench the spirit and grieve the Holy Spirit. And the Bible tells us to keep in step with the Holy Spirit and to seek the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in our ministry, and in, in the life of our church for the sake of our city. Jesus had taught his disciples, saying, don't leave the city, but wait for the gift my Father promised, because you will receive power when the Holy Spirit falls upon you. Are you preparing for the Spirit's power in your own life? We're going to look at Acts chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 9. We're actually going to read 9 through 14, and then verses 21 to 26 in your pew Bible. If you want to follow there, this is page 16. 91 and 1692. Luke writes, After he, that is Jesus, said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. 
They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, they said, Why do you stand there looking into the sky? This same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And then, uh, let's see, I'm going to continue. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot and Judas, son of the James. And they all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Skipping ahead to verse 21. Therefore, having talked about the gap in the apostleship because Judas killed himself, they say, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us. And beginning from John's baptism to the time when when Jesus was taken up from us, for one of these must become witnesses with us of the resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, also known as Justus, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. And so he was added to the 11 apostles. That's the picture we have of the church from the time they saw Jesus ascend into heaven until the time when the Spirit of God fell upon them with power. What did it look like? What does it look like to prepare for the Spirit's work, to prepare for the Spirit to fall? Well, you do it, first of all, by coming together in prayer. Did you notice the burden that they had, a burden to be felt by every follower of Jesus? It says in verse 14 that they all joined together constantly in prayer. This is the language that Luke uses. This isn't a little prayer tacked onto the end of the gathering. They're there to seek God together in prayer. It saturates their planning. They pray even before casting lots to decide on on a, a new apostle. They made prayer central to their life and their mission. And it says they, they joined together constantly in prayer. This is continual prayer, speaking to God constantly, laying your heart open to God, setting everything at his feet, crying out to God, pursuing God, longing for him. It's a constant posture of their hearts, and then they're constantly bringing them together to seek God together in prayer. Friends, I don't often talk about our sins as a church, but if I had to describe one that God has burdened me with, it's the sin of prayerlessness. How quick we are to get on doing ministry and running programs and getting tasks and taking care of things and taking care of people. And and how often do we say, no, we must come to the Lord first. He is our strength. He is our power. He is the one who, who will make everything work or fail according to his sovereign spirit's presence means seeking God constantly, continually. They all join together constantly in prayer. David Bryant sheds light on this. He says when he speaks about this burden to seek Jesus, when he talks about spiritual revival, 
He says, from whatever angle we view it, revival is fundamentally one thing. Revival is Christ. It's not a bunch of decisions. It's not a bunch of programs. It's not a bunch of meetings. It's not a bunch of strategy. It's the person. Jesus, when he comes down in the power and presence of his spirit and makes himself known, when the air is so heavy and thick with his presence and his glory and his grace that existentially you know he is there and you are moved to worship him and to delight in him, these disciples were fused together with a burden to intercede to God, to cry out with the prophets, Come down, O Lord, is it possible? Friends, is it possible that God is laying that burden on your heart? Is it possible that he's calling you to join in this ministry of seeking God together, of interceding and crying out for the Spirit of God to fill us overflowing, to empower his ministry for the sake of this great city, that it would see the reviving presence, the supernatural presence of the one in whom alone this city can find its peace and health and freedom. Because, friends, when you gain this burden, when you invite God into the room, it changes things. It flattens every single cultural barrier. Did you notice what was going on here in that room with those earliest Christians as they were waiting together on God, crying out to God continually in prayer? Do you notice who was in the room? It names them. Peter, James, John, Matthias, Justus. All the disciples were there, and who else? And the women. And Mary. And the brothers. Friends, in the first century, for a group of Jews to get together in a mixed meeting of men and women, all intimately gathered around crying out to God in prayer, would have been scandalous. Because men and women, they were on separate sides of the room or they were on separate rooms altogether. And yet you see as the Spirit of God, as it comes into the picture, as they're welcoming his presence and waiting on him and seeking him together, that these social barriers of class and gender and income and status suddenly get flattened and they don't matter anymore. They're all seeking God. They're seeking his face. They're invoking his name. And when God is in the room, then your gender doesn't really matter a whole lot. Your social economic status doesn't really matter. Your educational level isn't really all that important when the difference is between God and humanity and we're just a whole bunch of sinners loved by Jesus. It would have been scandalous and yet all these cultural barriers are flattened and it's, it's always been this way. It was that way in the early 20th century with the beginnings of, of Pentecostalism. And I'm not Pentecostal, but one of the things you see in, in the early 1900s in that Azusa Street revival is that, is that the power of God came upon a whole lot of people and they grasped the gospel in a new way and they were all together black and white. They were all just a bunch of Christians. In the early 20th century in America, black and white, seeking God together. You saw it in South Africa in the 19th century. In the early 1830s, there was a group of of pretty respected Christian leaders who, who began praying in the 1830s for the work of the Holy Spirit in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, And uh, granted, these were a bunch of white Christian leaders, white Dutch Reformed Christian leaders, but they continued to meet together, and they prayed for months, and yet after months of, of concerted praying to God, they had seen so little fruit. 
Those months turned into years, and yet they were sustained and seeking God and praying for his Holy Spirit and, and, and asking him to come down and revive. And they continued to pray and year in and year out. And it was in 1860, almost 30 years after that burden first came upon them and they began praying that, that something remarkable happened. And I witnessed the Reverend J.C. DeVries who was leading the prayer meeting at that instance, allows us to see the moment when 30 years of prayer came to fruition. He writes, On Sunday evening, there were gathered in a little hall some 60 young people. I was leader of the meeting, which began with a hymn and a lesson from God's word, after which I prayed. Three or four others gave out a verse of a hymn and, and prayed, as is the custom. And then... A colored girl of about 15 years of age in service with a nearby farmer rose at the back of the hall and asked if she too might propose a hymn. Well, at first I hesitated, not knowing what the meeting would think. But better thoughts prevailed and I replied, yes. She gave out her hymn verse and she prayed in moving tones. And while she was praying, we heard audibly, as it were, a sound in the distance which came nearer and nearer until the hall seemed to be shaken. The whole meeting began to pray, the majority in an audible voice, but some in whispers. Nevertheless, the noise made by the concourse was deafening. A feeling which I cannot describe took possession of me. And even now, years after these occurrences, the events of that never-to-be-forgotten night pass before my mind's eye like a soul-stirring panorama. You see, in the wisdom of God... After 30 years of prayer for the Spirit's work, it was the prayer of a black African servant girl in a room full of prosperous, white, educated Christians that was the capstone that brought down the Spirit's power. It was as if the Christians themselves were being converted that night. You see, Dutch... Dutch Reformed people, whether they're in Holland or Holland, Michigan or Holland, South Africa, they're not emotional, super expressive worshipers. They don't pray publicly, certainly not multiple people at the same time over top of each other. They don't weep tears of joy in worship as they pour out their heart in praise to Jesus. And yet that is what happened when the Spirit of God came down and God's Spirit began to course through the churches of the Cape Province and beyond. People could sense suddenly the nearness of God and they began repenting of their hatred, of their bitterness, of their arrogance of their unbelief and they began to see Jesus and social and cultural barriers were being flattened as the spirit of Jesus fell upon them and they gained a radically clear new sense of their priorities because the spirit of God had fallen. Friends, I want you to catch that burden I want it to capture your heart, to send you on your knees, to get you gathering and taking initiative with each other. This urgency, I want you to see the urgency of it. You see, they were praying together constantly in verse 14. The very thing that they did after Jesus returned to heaven is they prayed constantly. Can you sense that sense of 
of urgency? Has it, has it gripped you yet? Has, has God begun speaking to you about the urgency of seeking him continually and together? Is, is prayer your first step when making a decision? Is it, is it something that's compelling you? Tim Keller shares his own experience. It was a long time before he got the burden to pray. He says it was the second half of my adult life when I discovered prayer, and I had to. In the fall of 1999, I taught a Bible study course on the Psalms. It became clear to me that I was barely scratching the surface of what the Bible commanded and promised regarding prayer. And then came the dark weeks in New York after 9-11, while our whole city sank into a kind of corporate clinical depression, even as it rallied. For my family, the shadow was intensified as my wife, Kathy, struggled with the effects of Crohn's disease. And finally, I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. At one point during all of this, my wife urged me to do something with her that we had never been able to muster the self-discipline to do regularly. She asked me to pray with her every night. Every night. She used an illustration that crystallized her feelings very well. As we remember it, she said something like this. She said, Tim, imagine you were diagnosed with such a lethal condition that the doctor told you that you would die within hours unless you took a particular medicine, a pill, every night before going to sleep. Imagine that you were told that you could never miss it, not a single dose or you would die. Now, would you forget it? Would you not get around to it some nights? No, Tim, it would be so crucial that you wouldn't forget it. You would never miss it. Well, Tim, if we don't pray together to God, we are not going to make it because of all that we're facing. Tim, I'm certainly not. We have to pray, Tim. We can't let this slip our minds. And this, an accomplished and successful preacher whose wife had to tell him, this is urgent. We need to seek the Lord, this burden to come together, to prepare for the Spirit to fall. We prepare for the Spirit to fall by coming together in prayer with urgency, but we also specifically prepare by praying together with a sense of expectancy. Did you notice how they chose a new apostle? I mean, I'm not making this up. Luke wrote it down. He wrote it down this way because historically it happened. They, they found two good candidates that had been there with Jesus the whole time. They were godly. They had all the outward qualifications. And then they, they prayed to the Lord and said, God, we're about to roll the dice. We're going to flip a coin, Lord. And we are trusting that you are hearing our prayer and you are going to choose the candidate that you have for this position. They cast lots, seriously. They, they prayed. Did you notice? Like they said, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen. And then they flipped the coin. It went up in the, up in the sky. And somebody said heads, and it was tails. And Matthias became an apostle. I kid you not. That was praying with expectancy. It's like my friends David and Elizabeth who joined this church. They were here years ago, decades ago. And, and, and when they got married, you know, I think it was uh, David loved Grace and Peace Fellowship, wanted to be there. It was a perfect church. Elizabeth really felt called to be at Memorial. And, and they actually got out a coin, and they prayed over it for about a half hour, and then they flipped it up, and, and David called heads, and it was tails, and they joined Memorial. It's, it's, 
expectant prayer, trusting that God is going to answer? Do you realize, do you have this sense of expectancy that God will answer? Uh, And do you realize what he's doing when God burdens your heart to pray with this kind of expectancy? Uh, You know, Jonathan Edwards said that whenever God is about to do a great work of revival and renewal, awakening his church, he first sets the people to what? To praying with a sense of urgency so that he gets the glory, so that he gets what he moved you to seek from him. And when he gives it to you, he gets credit for it. Uh, You know, when God burdens you to to pray with expectancy, to trust in him, to, to place ourselves in a position where we're waiting on him and relying on him to answer. You know, that's what it means to pray with expectancy. It means to call upon him to change human hearts, to convert the unconverted, to to change and humble me, to break the power of addictions, to move people everywhere, to seek and savor their Savior, Jesus, to call upon their rescuer and to expect that God's Spirit will fall. What Jesus said in Mark 11 when he said, Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. Do you expect God to answer? Do you expect him to show up? Are you reliant on that, believing that he's real and that he's able? I have a photo here of Auntie Cook. Have any of you heard of Auntie Cook? Any Chicago people, moody people? Auntie Cook arrived in Chicago. She got this. She arrived in Chicago in 1868. In her words, she was a perfect stranger to the city. But she knew Jesus and soon became involved in Dwight Moody's church up there. Um, At that point, he was still a very young pastor. And Cook described the young Moody years later as a diamond in the rough. She said he was most truly, he had one desire to do good, burning through everything. His very earnestness moved people, but, she said, it was with such a lack in his teachings of the divine unction and power. In other words, he was a great speaker. He had lots of passion, but the Holy Spirit was not showing up. During a meeting in 1871, Auntie Cook felt burdened for Moody. He needed, in her in her words, an anointing of power from the Holy Spirit. And so she and her friend, Mrs. Hawkshurst, who usually sat in the front row, told Moody that they were praying for him, that he would have the fullness of the Holy Spirit in his life and ministry. And, and Moody wasn't really sure that this was a need. Um, nevertheless, he asked the two ladies, he humored them, and asked to meet with them uh, uh, in in Farwell Hall every Friday afternoon to discuss this matter and, and to pray and seek God together. Well, apparently Moody's hunger increased as he talked and prayed with these two women. Cook reports that on the Friday before the great Chicago fire, she says Mr. Moody's agony was so great that he rolled on the floor in the midst of many tears and groans and cried to God to see the power of the Holy Spirit in his life and in his ministry. Following the fire, Moody went to New York to raise money to rebuild his church building, which got burned, and the YMCA as well. And while in New York, he was walking down Wall Street one evening when the young preacher finally received and experienced what he'd prayed for. Moody says he felt such a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence that he cried out to God, Hold it, Lord, it's enough. He said, I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any different truths. And yet this time, 
hundreds of people were converted to Christ. I would not now be placed back where I was before that experience if you should give me all the world. See, I'm not talking about a second blessing experience. I'm talking about the daily power of the Holy Spirit to come upon the church and make us alive. I'm talking about second and third and eighth and thirtieth and hundredth and thousandth blessings as the Spirit of God falls and awakens us to his power. It's the power of faith in future grace. The the London preacher Charles Spurgeon cried out, O men and brethren, what would this heart feel if I could but believe that there were some among you who would go home and pray, truly pray for revival. Men whose faith is large enough and their love fiery enough to lead them from this moment to exercise unceasing intercession that God would appear among us and do wondrous things here as in times of former generations. I wonder what it would be like if there were 20 of you gathering before worship every Sunday, praying for the Spirit of God to fall, praying for the gospel to be clear, praying that God, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, would appear among us and do wondrous things here as in times of former generations. I wonder the change we would see in this church, and I wonder the change we would see in this city if God's people truly believed and cried out and called upon God to come down in power. How's it possible for all of this to happen? How's it possible that the early Christians could pray this way? It's possible, friends, because Jesus has ascended to heaven. It's what they, they mention it twice in this passage. They mention the ascension of Christ in verse 9. They mention it again in verse 22. It's what they had just witnessed and seen. Luke actually gives uh, in, in Acts this brief Uh, uh, description of the ascension. He gives a fuller account of it in his gospel according to Luke, in which he describes how, how glad they were to see Jesus ascend to heaven. And that's really strange, because usually, you know, when, when somebody's leaving you, you might not see them again for a long time. Usually it's a really sad experience. They're tears, and you get weepy, and it's sad. But, but Luke describes that they were overjoyed because Jesus was leaving them. You compare that to Paul leaving the Ephesian elders in, later on in the book of Acts and how sorrowful they couldn't let go and what's going on here with this ascension. R.C. Sproul puts it this way. He says, These disciples returned from their last sight of Jesus with their hearts filled with elation. How can that be? The obvious answer is found in that the disciples came to understand the significance of the ascension. As hard as it was for them to fathom, they came to believe that Jesus' absence from them was of more benefit than his bodily presence had been, the reason being where he was going and what he was about to do. He was lifted up on clouds of glory in order to go to his father for the purpose of his coronation as king. As king of kings, as lord of lords, he ascended into heaven to fulfill his role as our great high priest so that he could intercede for all of his people every single day. So as he sits at the right hand of the father, exercising his lordship over the whole world and his intercession before the father on behalf of us, his people, he improves our condition dramatically 
not only this, but before Pentecost, he could come. But before the Holy Spirit could be poured out, empowering the church for its work in the world, it was necessary that Christ ascend so that together with the Father, he might dispatch from heaven the Spirit of God in all of his power. I want you to imagine the picture in heaven that parallel universe of God that intersects and overwraps our own cosmos. Imagine Jesus sent out down from heaven to earth in abject humiliation, the shame of it, the Godhead wedded and enmeshed with mere human flesh, sent from his throne to become a creature and a human subject to suffering and sorrow and death, sent out with a mission to be humiliated, scourged, tortured, and murdered, sent out uh, with a mission to absorb the wrath of God in humanity's place. How shameful it must have seemed to the heavenly host. And then to hear that Christ had died, but that through his death the curtain within the temple of God was torn in two, the barrier that kept man from God was separated, and then to hear that the sins of all of God's people from Adam into the future had now been forgiven to hear that Satan had been defeated, that the curse would now be reversed, to hear that Jesus had risen from death and that he would never die again, that the grave had been overwhelmed and death itself defeated, to realize that Jesus Christ was now the hero of the human race and the savior of the whole cosmos, healing in his body that rift caused by the fall, to know that the Son of God had completed his mission and was now returning to glory in trial. Imagine the joy in heaven when the resurrected Christ returned just as he had been sent, returning in glory. One but can imagine the triumphal procession as all the hosts of heaven rejoice as the Lord Jesus Christ is crowned as King of kings and Lord of lords, taking up the throne at the Father's right side as all creation bows before his name. That's the ascension. That's what the disciples had just witnessed. That was what was in their heart and on their mind that enabled them to cry out to this Christ to pour out your spirit upon us, to seek him day and night, continually crying out for the power of God to be revealed. It's happened before. It'll happen again. Lewis Island is off the west coast of Scotland. It's one of the Hebrides. And in the middle of the 20th century, this island and the Presbyterian churches thereon were swept up by an awakening in which the unlikely fire seeds were too octogenarian, Gaelic-speaking, English was their second language, kind of Scottish Presbyterian sisters by the name of Peggy and Christine Smith. We've got a photo of them. They were age 84, and then the young spinster, age 82. Peggy was blind, and Christine was bent over with arthritis. These two old women were so sick that they could not go to church anymore, and yet in November of 1949, these two women became so burdened at the state of their own parish that they began to seek God in prayer. Not a single young person attended public worship on the entire island. Not a single young man or young woman went to church. And these two women were greatly concerned, and they made it a special matter of prayer before their God. 
there was a verse that gripped them from Isaiah 44 where God says, I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and foods upon the dry ground. They were so burdened that both of them decided that twice a week they would spend much of the night in prayer. On Tuesday, they got on their knees at 10 o'clock in the evening and they remained on their knees until 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. Two old women in a humble cottage praying to God in Gaelic. The sisters, anticipating that God would answer their prayer, had appealed to the presbytery for a full-time minister who would preach in the churches. And through their intense and intimate life of prayer, they knew that a certain uh, man by the name of Duncan Campbell was going to be the pastor. They didn't know where they got that name, but it's what came to them as they sought God. This is weird and supernatural for Presbyterians. And these, these were old-school, you know, unrenovated, old-school Scottish Calvinists here. But they knew God was going to send a Reverend Campbell to pastor it, and they knew that there would be seven future elders in the church. They were not yet converted, but when they instructed Campbell where they would find his future elders so that he could convert them, they became cranky because he was reluctant. The sisters' ceaseless prayer extended for several months until it began to happen. A series of meetings had been planned to explain the message of Jesus to anyone in the parish who was willing to come and hear. The first meeting was held in the old parish church. Lots of people gathered and absolutely nothing particular happened. On the second night, buses came from the four corners of the island and crowded the church until it was full. The preacher began his message. Nothing flashy, no pressure tactics, nothing too emotional. These were free church Scots. The wee free. They didn't even have hymnals because there weren't hymns in the Bible. They just, they just sang the Psalms. And they didn't even use instruments because instruments were too much of an innovation. And yet the preacher laid out the responsibility that we all have to be right with God. He explained the covenant promise of God as a covenant-keeping God. He talked to them about Jesus and called them to seek God. And he called them to seek God with expectancy, with urgency, in prayer. And as he began to preach, this tremendous conviction swept down over the congregation. Tears rolled down from the faces of the people. Men and women alike sensed that God's glory was in their presence. They cried out for mercy from every corner of the church. So deep was their distress that some of their cries could be heard outside the road. Others were filled with renewed hope and joy. There had been no pressure tactics. The meeting eventually closed and people began to move out. As the last person was leaving, a young man inside began to call out to God under a tremendous burden to pray for his friends who did not know the grace of Christ. And he prayed and prayed for three quarters of an hour until he was exhausted. As he continued to pray, people began gathering outside the door until there were twice as many people outside as there had been inside the church. And when the young man finally stopped praying, people all streamed back into the church again. And the meeting continued until four o'clock in the morning. The moment the people took their seats in great conviction, something began to sweep through the church. A spirit that that changed them, the most hardened of souls, began to weep and confess their sins and call out to Jesus. Strong men cried out to Christ. As the meeting was closing, someone excitedly hurried to the preacher. Preacher, come with me. 
There's a crowd of people outside the police station. They're weeping and they're in great distress and we don't know what's wrong with them all, but they're all calling for someone to come and pray with them. The minister described the scene outside that police station. At four in the morning, he said, I saw a sight I never thought possible in Scotland, something I shall never forget. Under a starlit sky, men and women were kneeling everywhere by the roadside, by the cottages, even behind the peat stacks, crying in Gaelic as well as English for God to have mercy on them, to awaken the people of the island to see Jesus. They experienced the fall of God, the fall of the Spirit. Fire fell with great conviction. One young man later explained, We didn't know what church going meant until then. But now prayer is our weekly attraction, and the worship of God in his house on the Sabbath is our chief delight. In the Lewis awakening, it was two octogenarians named Peggy and Christine whom God burdened to seek him to intercede, to expect the power of God to fall from heaven. The gift the Father promised through the ascended Lord Jesus, they prepared for the Spirit of God. To fall. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I pray that you would come and fall upon us now.